Over the arc of his career, John Maeda has been many things. He's been a professor at MIT, president at the Rhode Island School of Design, design partner at Kleiner Perkins, head of computational design and inclusion at Automatic, and now chief experience officer at Publicis Sapien. In our interview with John, we learned how curiosity and humility has driven his wide-ranging and accomplished career. We also dive deep into his recent CX report, which was formerly called the Design and Tech Report. By the way, we also ask him about the name change. We discuss why algorithms have the potential to narrow our point of view and why digital transformation is so hard for companies that are lower on what he refers to as the Kardashev scale. Every time we chat with John, we're gifted with his wisdom about design, technology, and people. We hope you enjoy the interview as much as we did. As a Design Better listener, we think you'll enjoy Tools and Weapons. It's a podcast hosted by Microsoft's Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. Brad's conversations with leaders at the intersection of the promise and perils of the digital age touch on some fascinating topics, like the new AI economy and how AI is becoming a tool in the battle against hunger. On a recent episode, Brad was taken to Venice, Italy, where he connected with Eve Ubelmanhoff of Iconum. It's a startup that specializes in 3D digitization of endangered cultural heritage sites. During the relative quiet of the pandemic, Eve and his team used drone capture photography and some powerful AI tools to create a full-scale digital twin of Venice, a city threatened by climate change and over-tourism. How cool is that? On Tools and Weapons, Eve tells Brad how he's using this incredible technology to help preserve some of the world's most endangered cultural heritage sites in pristine detail so they can be studied and appreciated for generations to come. To stay current on some of the most innovative people working with AI today, you should subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith, wherever finer podcasts are served. John Maeda, thank you for joining us on the Design Better podcast today. Thank you, Aaron and Eli. I'm honored to be here. I've always wanted to be on this. Well, here we are. Here we are together. <laughs> Dreams do come true. We want to talk to you about your CX report, and we'll dig into that in just a bit because that was a profound piece of work. Certainly, it seemed like there was a lot of time and energy that went into that. Lots of interesting ideas to share with our listeners today. But maybe we could start first by talking a little bit about your career, if you're okay with that. The arc of your career is particularly interesting. And rather than going through all the stuff, I wondered if we could talk about what you've learned along the way. There are lots of different types of things that you've done in the course of your life. And what's interesting to me is that you've been involved with venture capital, with higher education, with various boards, and created some amazing work. But what's fascinating about the thread in your career is the curiosity that you maintain. There are times where you ducked in and actually went back to school, even really far into your career. And that feels really unique. And also, you seem very open to the world and what's happening. Could you talk a little bit about curiosity and that openness that you've had in your career and, and what that's unlocked for you? Sure. Well, first of all, I want to apologize for sounds happening over my head. We are in hashtag COVID, hashtag work from home. So you will hear sounds, dogs, uncontrollable things that posts cannot remove. So first, disclaimer, posts is good, but posts can't do that yet. Secondly, 
I think that I've been curious about a lot of things because I just don't know a lot. And I want to know because I know that if I don't know, then I'm kind of clueless. So I think every step of the way I wanted to learn. Like I remember when I landed in Silicon Valley, I hear people say behind my back, he's never been working in design in a company before at this scale or whatever. I said, oh, maybe I should do that. <laughs> you know, Oh, he's never invested in blah, blah, blah. Oh, maybe I should do that. You know, like, oh, he's never understood what product management is. Oh, maybe I'll hire a coach and learn that too. And so if anything, it's because I've been so ignorant. That is why I've tried to learn each step of the way to fill in some terrible gap I have in understanding things. John, the arc of your career and the humility that you've taken that approach, that's wonderful. Let's shift over to your recent work with CX Report. A couple questions there, and I hate to ask two questions at once, but the one, first is hopefully a very brief one. It's, we're curious about why the shift in naming from what was the design and tech report to the CX Report. And then tied to that, in the email that you sent out that was a sort of announcing the report and inviting us to view it, you had a really nice quote that I, I believe was yours, and it said, if you only see one solution to a problem, then you don't really understand the problem. So maybe you could talk about those two things in conjunction. Well, I have been really interested in the intersection of technology, design, and business. And over time, I began realizing how the word design is so loaded. And it's also got a lot of pain embedded in it. And so whenever I would press too hard on it, it would bite back at me. And I thought, huh, okay, well, that's important to know. I think I was misquoted in Fast Company that I didn't think design was really important. That was the best headline ever. It was the <laughs> highest performing article. <laughs> I was like, wow. This, actually, when I saw it, I was like, that's genius. And wow, did I like get like a, a wonderful sort of response because I'm a believe, big believer in user research. So I was like, oh, that's what you think. Oh, that's what you think. Oh, well, that makes sense because you don't know me. And, but when I double click on you, I can know a little more about you. And um, that perspective makes total sense. And so if you're a designer in a company that is oppressed, you don't want to hear someone say design doesn't matter because you're having a hard enough time. If you're a designer who's moved on beyond being oppressed and actually has a point of view on things that goes across function, then you're kind of like, yeah, I think we have to kind of like be there. If you're someone who is in product, you're kind of like, well, of course, you know, an island won't help anybody, et cetera, et cetera. So you can see many perspectives on things. And that's why I landed on CX because I was hanging out at your old stomping ground, Aaron, MailChimp, mm. with Gene Lee, who yeah. was sort of like wrestling with the CX phrase. And I was like, oh, I said, hey, Gene, I got an idea. I'm going to rename the Design and Tech Report to CX Report. And we were right next to a Freddy statue where I swore I would try that out. <laughs> um, and then it kind of ran with it. And it's been really great. Because CX is traditionally owned by the marketing people, but it's not working really well there. UX is kind of owned by product and marketing. But every, no one's sure who owns what. So I wanted to land in the CX space and just talk about experience in general, but make the C about computation. 
because computation is the fabric of what's changed everything. You know, it's why when I look, when I look at your latest, uh, your revised edition, Aaron, you're trying to catch up to what changed in computation. And that's going to keep on changing. So if it's computation changing experiences in the marketing and product stack and the supply chain as well, we have to talk about how it changes it and what it doesn't change or what it shouldn't change. There's another thing that that C and CX could stand for, which is culture. And there are mm. you know big cultural shifts that feel like they go hand in hand with that computational shift. Totally. Is that part of your thinking as well right now? You know, it's interesting because in the design and tech report around the second one, I was lucky to hang out with a lot of Gen Z people at Kleiner. Mm -hmm. And they were all like, hey, this world, Silicon Valley, is not inclusive. It doesn't work quite right. It's monoculture. And I began seeing it all over the place. And I think of MailChimp as lucky because it was Atlanta culture versus Silicon Valley culture. Yeah. But when I saw that, I thought, hmm, so design and tech report really asked questions around inclusivity product inclusion, not just marketing inclusion, exclusion. And then when you think about it, computation was changing culture because computation allowed us to automate exclusion. Mm -hmm. And in the process, we would look at the algorithms or machine learning and realize, huh, so if something is an automatic sentencing system that uses ML and uses past court cases, and it turns out that you're more likely to arrest someone who's in a poor zip code, the AI will say, I must arrest you if you live in a poor zip code, mm -hmm. which tends to be certain kinds of neighborhoods of oppression. And so that's been an interesting piece that the computation reveals the badness of culture. And it's kind of surprising and actually quite good. I wouldn't say positive, but important. Yeah, to that point, too, there's a lot that you, you, you dive into your report around sort of some of the positive things of the computing power and the way that it can personalize and customize products for us. But I also wonder, you know, how does that affect things like privacy or, you know, creating perhaps an, a narrower viewpoint for people who are visiting these social media platforms and an algorithm is sort of driving the content that they're already very engaged in and just sort of narrows their their point of view even further. Oh, it's it's so funny because as you know, I was walking into my studio to get ready and I said it smelled bad because we had some kind of construction that this room doesn't smell the way it normally smells, but now it smells totally fine. I've just been with you for 10 minutes and it smells okay, but I know if I leave it and I come back, I'll notice it smells bad. So that's your question. I think that because the algorithms are optimizing around us, they're even better than a bad smelling room. It took me maybe 10 minutes to acclimate. The algorithms will help you acclimate to the smell you like within milliseconds. And I think that's the problem. So how do we step out and actually smell what's actually happening is going to be extremely hard. And that's why I'm depending upon creative people. And when I say creative people, I mean going to Aaron's cultural people. And I mean that in terms of arts, sort of like humanities, who think about being a human. If we do not come back to that, you know, like the home row on a typewriter, if we don't home row back there, we're going to be stuck in this super optimized world where you can't smell badness at all. And that's not good. It's not good business as well. And drawing a line between business and this other piece is what I'm passionate about in my current role and also my previous role as well. So I'm just really interested in like, how do you see the business 
opportunity around it versus the business risk around it. What you're talking about with computation and the potential for as it accelerates to reshape our world, you said it's important and you kind of described it almost like an amplifier is my interpretation of computation as an amplifier of what already exists culturally. And it occurs to me that this virus, COVID-19, is an amplifier and it is algorithmic and it is spreading and mutating in, in a very similar type of pattern right now that is drawing our attention to inequity. It's drawing our attention to political division. It's drawing our attention to a lot of things that are already present, but we're just seeing it with clearer eyes right now, focusing our attention. I wonder if, how you think about that. Well, it's funny because as we were talking, I just had this funny memory. And it goes two ways. Well, not funny, sad memories. For instance, there was an audio cast about exclusion. And there were two leaders, Caucasian men, talking about this, winking at Aaron. He was one of them. And then once he was talking online, oh my gosh, he's a Caucasian man. They're both Caucasian. But what do they know about being excluded? And you told your wonderful personal story, Aaron, and suddenly the chatter like changed. Another example, I was at Google. I had the opportunity to introduce a really famous person who came off a big production, and she's an African-American woman. And so usually when I talked, or when I used to, I don't talk at all now, so this is really kind of like a very rare thing now. <laughs> but I put my like phone number on, on, on the screen so you can text me a question. And ask me that way it's more agile, iterative, you know. So I always do I always do that. And then I had the phone number on my screen available when I was interviewing this amazing person. Within seconds, I was getting death threats aimed at her. Hmm. And to say anything, of course, just kept going. But I thought, wow, how lucky am I that this way I look, which is like a typo minority, I don't get that. Whereas just based on how I look, I might get a lot of things that I didn't ask for, you know? And in many senses, it's why I see my role as crossing different, whether it's business and technology design or identity, getting close to the Caucasian male experience, which I've known all my life, and having empathy for that as well. I find that this odd place that I sit in keeps me awake. And I guess I like to share the excitement for that. But it means that you have to step out and smell bad things is a thing. And nobody wants to say, like, ah, I like how it smells right now. You know, but you know, like, actually, it smells really bad. Well, I didn't know. Uh, and I think that people who are divergent can go there. But those who are convergent executors will just not go there. And how to make that balance get upset is really important to me. And it won't get changed if we live in a computational loop. We'll have automated all the, the home row of humanity out. Just from my perspective, John, I greatly admire and appreciate what you're describing. I've seen you do on multiple occasions where you bring people together with different perspectives, with great intentionality, and the power of those meetings, small groups of people where they can connect with one another. I've benefited greatly from that, and I've seen others that you bring into that space benefit greatly. So I want to point that out to listeners because I think that 
what you're doing is something that others can do as well to bring that cross-pollination of ideas and perspectives. It's also dangerous because when you bring like-minded people together, everything is totally fine. People criticize Silicon Valley bro culture. Well, it was the most optimal way to scale. And so it was a systems perspective. But from a larger system perspective, it's a bad idea because the ideas will get limited. So the worst thing to do is bring in different types of people together because they're going to be arguing. But that's the exciting part, to be in that place of discomfort that I find those who are willing to be there, like you're saying, Aaron, benefit immensely. And those of who don't self-select and say, no thanks, which is okay because that's another type of archetype. Yeah, John, I love what you're saying about empathy. And I, with my brothers, I have a, a Slack channel, which is pretty nerdy, Slack workspace. And we, we get random, you know, we share funny GIFs and, and then we also get in deeper discussions. And I have two younger brothers that are twin brothers. And one is a little more libertarian. One is much more liberal. And I watch them and, and they're twins and they obviously love each other, but sometimes it gets very heated and, and, almost borderline aggressive and then some, you know, that backs off and it's clear that they, they still love each other. But those conversations are so difficult. And I wonder as designers and people who create products, are there ways that we can help people that don't, that aren't twins, that don't share that familiar bond, have those types of, of conversations? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't mean to keep selling Aaron's book, but I want to point <laughs> out that I love, and I think it's gone now, because I always love hitting the sweaty mo- I think the sweaty monkey thinker may be gone. I'm not 100% sure, but it may have been optimized out because it was too weird maybe. But I love that moment where like, Freddie gets me. I am nervous to press this button, number one. Number two, that's an automated image. So Freddie never gets tired being empathetic. Yes, Freddie is just an image, but I'm like, you're totally here with me each time, Freddie. Thank you. And so I think that there is fake empathy or scarecrow of empathy, which isn't bad. I think it's a surrogate for something actually kind of good. And I think this idea of authenticity is oversold. Is it inauthentic for a robot to say thank you or a robot to say something back pleasantly? I don't know. I kind of like it. I think if I had a parrot, I'd like the parrot. (laughs) I wouldn't like put it down because it's not making up new stuff. There's that one thing. And then there's like empathy, empathy, like non-parrot, non-automated empathy, which unfortunately takes time. And business does not like to pay for things that do not show immediate value. If you're a product manager, that's a great idea, but I think we got to make it work. Or the engineer is saying, we really got to make it work. And for designers to say, no, 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 we need empathy for the, for, for the one out of five person that's going to have a hard time. And so I would flip it to say, I think people who care about empathy have to understand how things are implemented and make a business case for it. For instance, one of my favorite micro discoveries, you know, it already exists with like uh, Airbnb, uh, Lottie, or the, you know, the ways to like make illustrations where you can make them into packages, mm-hmm. and the package can go in after compile time, like a like a GIF or a JPEG or a or, or any kind. Oh my gosh, there's so many image formats right now. <laughs> so it's like <laughs> six new image formats to compress whatever you know. But anyways, I like the fact that you can now put conditional animations into production. 
And if you're someone who's a designer who can think computationally and can think also the, from the product perspective, it reduces risk, doesn't bother the engineer, it's one different kind of call, then how many kind of things like that exist where you can actually have your product express more empathy? I think that's the trick. It's not just to have empathy, how to execute on it, how to implement and scale, how to prove it through data and test it, and just show it worked. That's, I think, is more important than just having empathy. Support for Design Better comes from our friends at CrashPlan. Visit CrashPlan.com slash Design Better for 50% off your first year of CrashPlan. From my daughter's first birthday to my son's first soccer game, if you're like me, you have thousands of precious family photos that only exist in digital form. That's why I've been using CrashPlan for a decade and a half now to back up all my important files. CrashPlan works efficiently in the background while you work, encrypting and sending all your new or changed files up to their secure cloud server every 15 minutes. And they make it simple to restore some or all of your data. And with unlimited version retention, CrashPlan can also be your ultimate rewind button. Businesses of all sizes benefit from CrashPlan's multi-tenant capabilities, buy as many user licenses as you need, and easily manage them all under one account. Go to CrashPlan.com slash designbetter for 50% off your first year of CrashPlan. That's CrashPlan.com slash designbetter, all one word, for 50% off your first year. Back up better with CrashPlan. Support for Design Better comes from Uplift Desk, creators of office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. It's been estimated that the average person will spend one-third of their life at work. Sobering, huh? That's roughly 90,000 hours at work over your lifetime. Imagine what happens to your body if you're working with bad posture and poor circulation. It can be devastating on your health. That's why Eli and I love Uplift Desk and their ergonomic desks and chairs. Uplift Desk makes solid, well-constructed standing desks that you can customize to match your workspace. And they have a wide variety of incredibly ergonomic chairs. My personal favorite is the Human Scale Freedom Chair. I'm sitting in it right now. For professionals like us, investing in the right tools, especially our desk and chair, is essential. You're going to get free shipping, free returns with free return shipping, and an industry-leading 15-year warranty that covers the complete desk. Eli and I love their products, and we know that you will too. Give it a try. Go to upliftdesk.com and use code DESIGNBETTER5 for 5% off your order. That's U-P-L-I-F-T desk.com to get 5% off your entire order with promo code DESIGNBETTER5. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. When we spoke with Seth Godin on Design Better, he said something very interesting. Everyone's got a noise in their head. You, me, your boss, everyone. That noise in our head is self-doubt, confusion, fear, anxiety, all of that. It's part of the human experience, and it can hold us back. Therapy is one of the best ways to work through it all, to quiet the unproductive noise and develop positive mental health. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and to work with your schedule. BetterHelp can help you get the support that you need. Visit BetterHelp.com slash DesignBetter today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash DesignBetter. 
John, in the CX report, you said nobody's in charge of customer experience because everyone is, which goes back to this idea that building on Eli's previous question about how might we work together, that's kind of a problem that customer experience, CX, falls between the cracks. If no one can really own it, it's got to be owned by everyone. How should we be thinking about that differently these days? Well, okay, I love putting stuff out there because I always have people criticize very quickly. Uh, <laughs> like, I mean, how could you say that? You know, I mean, that's a bad thing to say or like, oh, that happens all the time or some people agree or disagree. I guess my point is that if you are a business that makes cans of soup, you don't have to worry about things as much as other businesses. You got to make the can of soup. The can of soup has a ship. It's got to get in someone's hands. If you're really back end, like backstage, backstage, it's really good. Because not really good, but you don't have to have concern about the org chart because you, you're making the product, the raw thing. But anything that is customer facing, and you consider the customer facing part goes all the way from the first time you heard of it to every time it breaks after you own it. And you consider how the org chart's really important because that's how you scale the function. Then, yes, everyone is going to own the customer experience. So my point of saying it in that context was, and it's okay. It's what success looks like. It's just how the customer fails, but it's how you succeeded in scaling as a business. The question is, going back to a theme that both of you embody, is now how do we work together? And we work together through understanding each other's language, common language. I think everyone can't do that. That's what's hard. I've been lucky to have a few decades to understand designer ease, product ease, engineering ease, board ease, all these eases. And so the translators are necessary to facilitate those conversations. And hopefully they don't expire along the path of trying to broker peace. John, in your CX report, you also talk about um, the Kardashev scale. I really love that, maybe because I'm reading uh, the three-body problem right now, and it kind of the idea kind of <laughs> resonated with me. But I wonder also, you, you're probably familiar with our design maturity report and the work that Leah Buley and others did. Is there any kind of interesting correlation between your Kardashev scale and the way that we're sort of categorizing companies in their design maturity? I think that the way that design as a discipline has tried to kind of define itself in maturity is different than what I'm trying to do with the Kardashev thing. Uh, by the way, I just like essentially co-opted someone else's scale that is for energy transfer, which every good sci-fi nerd will call me out. <laughs> I can't believe you did that. It has nothing to do with whatever. But <laughs> I've discovered that Kardashev scale seems to sound scientific to business folks. They're like, oh, what is that? It's like sounds like a medicine. So it kind of works, you know? And secondly, it's meant to address a much simpler problem, but related to the design maturity and scale. So first of all, Kardashev 1s mean, I just discovered the internet. It's amazing. Kardashev 2 is, I think I need to be sort of seen online in some way and like engage and that's in the era of the 90s, if you'll recall. There were no customers online. They were all business to business. Kardashev 3 is, oh my gosh, like 
I like to say Kardashevian, like like Kardashian. So so it's like the Kardashians are like on you're on the mobile phone. So it's B to C. It's happening. Kardashian four is any Google like company. The Fangs, the Bad Xs, they're like way far ahead of everyone. Whether it's B to B, B to C, they're like gigantic beehive style computational businesses. And then it's Kardashian five, which is like the Singularity or Skynet. And what I find interesting, if you categorize it that way, I'm sure like your friends who work at Kardashev for companies, big tech, they're all afraid of the singularity. But they're like, it's coming. Anyone who's in Kardashev 3 is like, yeah, right. Anyone who's in Kardashev 4 is like, oh, it's coming. And so what I find is that the work that I do at Publicist Sapient covers mainly Kardashev 1 and Kardashev 2 companies coming into Kardashev 3. And so it helps me define the problem much better. So it might be useful to non-designers. Despite the web being in our lives for, you know, almost three decades, right? It's been around for a long time. Mm -hmm. Companies still struggle so much with the idea of digital transformation. In fact, that phrase, it feels like a legacy. And yet it's it's in our, our lexicon daily. It's everywhere. Yeah, so, isn't it? Yeah, what's what makes it so hard to make the jump from these various Kardashev levels? What makes it so hard is that the organization always lags the available technology by one generation of Kardashev, is my theory. Is like you might have like a Kardashev 2 company sort of killing it in the B2B space, but the employees are still like, you know, this internet thing. I can see how it is using my work. <laughs> you know, I can see how it's using my work, but I don't really like Slack or whatever. It's kind of hard to use, but um, email, please. So the one generation behind. The ones who are Carter sort of three B2Cing, they're kind of like, yeah, but actually I don't have a Twitter account. Or actually I don't, that's for work. And so the culture is lag. And so if anything, I notice that that's the problem is that maybe the, company itself is leaning in the right direction, but the employee experience says something else internally. And I think in like, like in the all remote companies, right? Like Envision or Automatic or whatever. I, I, I kind of feel like those companies are using the most advanced Kardashev 4 technologies inside. There's no styrofoam cups and string. It's like all like dilithium crystal stuff, right? And so for companies who are living there on the USS Enterprise, They're like, that is weird. How can companies work like that? But that's the reality. And that's why Fang and Bad X are like, like, they're winning. The winner takes all right now. John, in the CX report, you talk a bit about shipping your org chart. And when we talk to companies, that's often seen as a very negative thing, right? That's a clue in that they're not organizationally very efficient or they're not using design in the right way. But I think you have a slightly different perspective. Maybe you could talk about that. I'm super okay with your experience looks like your org chart because it means you've achieved scale. Scale is so hard with people rowing in roughly the same direction, knowing their swim lanes. And the only problem is that computation has linked everything together much more efficiently. So the only way to be able to smooth out the cracks between an experience and how an organization works is to turbocharge the organization itself. And 
improve its employee experiences to modernize those, which doesn't happen because that's usually owned by who? HR or people operations, which is never an area of the company that gets the most technology investment. And in absence of that, employee experiences will always be stuck one to one and a half Kardashev generations behind. And that is the tragedy, number one. Number two, executives, leaders, can go anywhere they want. And they can move from company to company. And they can optimize and always be with the best tools, the best employee experience. And when they leave, they aren't accountable for what they made. And so therefore, they tend to optimize at their level. So the entire organization never is able to transform itself. That I find troubling. And that is why I figured out why at the Rhode Island School of Design, for instance, to some, I'm like Voldemort. Because I digitally transformed the place. I'm not sure if you read in the press, I was disliked by a lot of people. Why? Number one, a month before I arrived, I moved everything over to Google Apps. A month before I arrived, <laughs> this is a rewind, I moved everything over from a Novell broken email system to Google Apps enterprise scale. Clearly going to be unpopular. Number two, I brought in, you know, Jack Dorsey just released a square. And I was like, hey, Jack, can I give these away at commencement? Of course, that's the worst thing to do because people say, like, who needs this stupid thing? Right? Okay. But then years later, as I began to be in the role and kind of really enjoy, like, just watching, because someone who's curious just watches. I remember being somewhere on campus and someone who really disliked me came up to me and said, hey, John, we got a pop-up shop in the exhibition this year. You should show up because I love shopping. And they said to me, this year we're taking credit cards. I said, oh, yeah, really? How are you doing that? We use this thing called a square. I said, what's that? And they said, it's a mobile payment device. I said, that's amazing. I'll see you there. So I think what we don't say is that digital transformation is about those kind of changes which are painful to make. And the leader who chooses to do that, it's not a great experience for them, but it's so wonderful to see as long as you don't care about yourself. I think those kind of leaders for digital transformation, I don't think are quite prevalent. And that's why we see so little of it today. And that's what the term, Aaron, has to exist because it hasn't happened yet. In the CX report, you put forth this great framework that helps companies and leaders think about that transformation process. Lead, L-E-A-D, light, ethical, accessible, dataful. What's nice about that is just like, it's an acronym that you can kind of keep in your brain and know what to focus your attention on as you're trying to move things forward. Could you talk to us about what that model is and, and how it works? That's kind of a culmination of thinking about Silicon Valley practices for better products. And it's different from saying that design's about what's desirable. I mean, again, I'm gonna keep selling your book. I believe strongly in the emotional. <laughs> I believe strongly in the emotional dimension. I mean, people say to me, why do you care about lead and not emotion? Of course I care about emotion. Of course I care about narration. However, if that's your only weapon, you're not gonna win the video game. And I think that the, what the best companies in tech have done 
is they've been able to do an and, you know, like this and this. And yes, emotion, yes, narration. And it better be fast. It better be easy to use. It better be using data to iterate. And ideally, it's ethical. Thinks about privacy. So that's where lead came out as a, just a kind of way to talk about the other suite of weapons that help make great design occur, which are all invisible. No one gets points for making something fast and it's printed in a journal or like a magazine or an exhibition. Like, that's so fast. I can't tell, you know, or like, that's so easy to use. I can't tell. I want to look at how it smells or feels, whatever, you know, that uses data well for privacy. How do you tell? So these are like four pillars of how to make a good experience in the computational age that I pushed really hard on to kind of put into the foreground. It's not like a, a new idea for many designers in tech. They're like, ah, that's obvious. But for people in Kardashev 1 or 2, you know, it's like, what is that? Is that why I have to care why a GIF or a WebP is? Is that why I have to care about it? Oh, I get it. Okay. John, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about this lead framework, but also how does design weave into that? And I thought a really nice little graphic in your report was about why design became important with the frequency of interaction. If you're just interacting with the product once when you log on and once when you log off during a day, it's not as painful, but we're getting this era where you're pretty much always on a device and the pain can become infinite <laughs> and infinite ouch. So maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah. Well, first of all, I want to point out that I don't think of lead as a framework and people will try to think of it as a framework. To me, it's just like four facts of what make for great product experiences. And they're not new. That's another thing. The second thing is that they all come from the realization. It's so funny how like when I got to Silicon Valley, started working at Kleiner, I was asked like, why is design so important? And for the life of me, I couldn't figure it out. Or maybe you have to be more like Apple. Maybe you should wear a black turtleneck or whatever. That's not going to work. That's like something isn't working. And why is it all these companies are acquiring newer companies? And it's like, oh, well, they're all, they're all used, they're all mobile first. They were mobile born. So, huh. So then bring in the Kim Kardashian bit, consumerized computing everywhere. Okay, everyone's using computer. All right. So in that world, if you do a pre world, in the pre world, we would use like Eudora or Elm to check email. And they were painful experiences, and you would do them twice a day. Whereas if you're living in a smartphone world of always unlock and check the Las Vegas slot machine, we're doing a lot. So if you don't have a good experience every time you unlock, you're not going to addict. Whereas in the past, we would do it just twice a day, two hits. Now we do hundreds of hits. So the experience had to improve. But that's where I think design, meaning how beautiful it was, wasn't really the point. The point was that it was a different kind of design that was more addictive, more effective. And that's why I, I admire Google so much at isolating speed as the secret ingredient, like streganona, the ingredient, <laughs> whatever, where it's like speed. I used to think that, that Google was idiotic focusing on speed from a classical designer perspective. I was like, how could you care about speed? It's all about how it's how it should feel, whatever. Feeling speed is what made Google's experiences so fundamentally better than everybody else's. So lead comes from these like ahas of, boy, I was stupid. Let me tell you what I should have known back then. 
John, what role does creating these annual reports play in your thinking? Because it occurs to me that you've actually built a really great system for yourself for like, how do I collect these things, experiencing the world and discovering new things? You start to find connections between all these different things that lead to a new perspective. You've done, I think, five years of the reports. Is that right? Or is it longer still? This is the sixth one. Sixth. Okay. So six years. Yeah. How does this fit into the way that you work and think? Well, first of all, I, I don't know why I haven't stopped because it's sort of a thing that I just kind of started. And so I put it in that category we call passion project, which has no logic. And I do it because I know year round I'm thinking about stuff and I just email myself a bookmark of everything I find, and then print it all out after 10 months, and just kind of look at it and like, oh, that's what I was thinking. This is what I'm thinking now. And it's like picking up all the breadcrumbs of a year and trying to see a gestalt of what I should care about. And then it's just basically an open source view of like, this is what I think. And what's interesting is how I love the criticism of it always. It's like, why are you doing this? And like, this is so wrong. And this is so whatever. And it's like, yeah, you're right. I think that's like a dumb idea. Let me like fix it. So it's also a way to be dataful, where like after I push it out, I'm like, huh, I think this is wrong. <laughs> so let me change this. Oh, this is wrong. Actually, I kind of like the wrongness of that. That might become right later. So I use it to kind of correct my thinking in relationship to back to the C word of culture. Because culture is something I care about, but culture is something I know I don't have to agree with as well. And where I'm willing to stand or not is why I do it. I imagine that the next report, given what's happened so far this year, is you're going to have a lot of, a lot of material <laughs> to discuss for, for the 2020 report. I don't know anymore because in many senses with COVID-19, racism, awareness, unemployment, tech maturing, tech immaturing. I don't know. I, I think that right now is like a dead zone for me just because, you know, it's interesting. So every, every week in my company, I push out a Monday communication and I, I have three things, kind of like my newsletter, my off and on newsletter, which I, it isn't really monthly. I'm not sure if you noticed, but it's like, I got to get that out. Anyways, that's another passion side hobby. But, um, I have three things. So I've made it four things now. And the fourth thing is always Black Lives Matter, looked at globally. And I found this really important because as events became visible, sure enough, they start to become invisible. So it's given me diligence to keep looking. And when you keep looking, you realize, oh, just the media just lost interest. There's so much to look at. And so if anything, I can now commit to seeing it all the time and even inciting the organization I lead. That's I'm very excited about. That sounds in a strange way. I'm excited that I now know how to commit differently. So maybe other people feel the same way now is my hope. John, thank you so much for joining us on the Design Better podcast. It's a fascinating conversation. Thank you. Before we sign off though, where can people read the CX report and learn more about you? People can read cx.report, easy domain name. And for my, my blog is maeda.pm, 
people ask why PM because I love product management. So that's why it's my PM. <laughs> Fantastic. Thanks so much, John. Thank you.